Faisal, I wish he got a phone call. I wish you were here. Um, he asked um, a question at the end that, that really helped me process what, what he was getting at or what he was kicking around. Here's, here's what I would say regarding the patriarch or, you know, those before the law and the Sabbath law is that in a lot of ways, I would say that the, the pre-law people are very similar to us right now is what I would argue. That, that day seven has always been ultimately pointing to Christ. Oh, that's not good. Um, is this, did I? sure that it's not this. I hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, this computer's weird. I've never actually been able to see where the battery little indicator is. But let's go with it and see if it shows up again. Yeah. So, so, yeah, Faisal's question. So, in a lot of ways, the pre-law people are similar to us in that Sabbath has always been pointing to a concept which is fulfilled in Christ more than it was a day. Does that make sense? So, I think that's help, a helpful way to answer Faisal's question better than I did before. It hasn't been about a day. It's been about a person been about a concept, faith, in that, in that Sabbath person. Okay, so we're going to run real quick. This is just like a slight uh, progression that you see. Faisal, I just brought up your great point at the end there, and you missed it, but that's okay. We'll talk later. Uh, yeah, good job, Faisal. So this is just a progression that you, you can see in the, in the text to a degree that God... God goes from speaking things into existence to making things. So like he's speaking, then you see him making. Now, he speaks after he makes. So it's not entirely like crystal clear. But there seems to be a progression in the creation narrative of God speaking things into existence, making things, forming things, which is a word for pottery, forming things, into the most intimate God gets is breathing the breath of life into Adam's nostrils. Now, in the flood, you're going to see that the animals have the breath of life. So it's not exclusive to humans. But what is unique to humans is this picture of like God himself bending down on his knees, as it were, and breathing into Adam's nose the breath of life. Very intimate picture, okay? So there's a progression. And God said, 1, 3, and 9, and God made, 1, 7, and he, he makes somewhere else too. I just don't have all the references in there. The Lord God formed, which seems to be more hands-on, and then breathed into his nostrils. This is important. 
this passage becomes the reader's intimate reference, point of reference, for the name the Lord God. Elohim is used all through Genesis 1. Elohim. Which in that day was the general name. It'd almost be like, I don't know if you guys have the term here, higher power. Have you ever heard that name? Higher power. That's kind of, a, in, in the States, that's a very general name for a God. You know, a higher power. In some ways, that's how Elohim was in this day. It was a general name for God. But now it's getting more intimate about who he is. And that intimacy shows up exclusively with man. So, this is God and man's exclusive relationship. Uh, Oliver, we tracked kind of a progression from God saying to making to forming to breathing the air into Adam's nostrils. So he's kind of like getting intimately close. The Lord God is the name. And this is the name that after the fall, it doesn't fall out of existence. That name's used with the patriarchs. But when, when God shows up with Moses, he's telling Moses, I'm going to teach these people my name. It's as though the intimacy of God fell out of practice. And so in the Exodus, God is restoring that intimacy. That's, that's what's happening. Restoring that recognition, who he is, both his power, his cosmos, and his communion. Power over everything and his intimate relationship with man. And then you see God walking in the garden. So he starts by speaking things into existence. And all of a sudden, he's actually walking footsteps, as it were, in the garden. So you see this clear movement as he gets closer. And then even after the fall, you see that God longs for this relationship to be restored. I'll make my dwelling among you. I shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God. And you shall be my people. And then, of course, what do we see in Jesus Christ? The Word became flesh. He became one of us. His Son became one of us. Like us. Right? But then it even gets more intimate. John 20, 22, And He breathed on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So now we are... <coughs> the body of Christ. We are the temple of God. He's in us. So it's an incredibly beautiful, biblical, overall trajectory of God moving, moving, moving to being in us. Okay. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. That's very important to remember. Everybody say east. east. Remember that. Big theme in Genesis and beyond. Okay? So, you got Eden, and then what do you have inside of Eden? A garden. Okay, so that's, that's important to understand. So you've got the earth which he tells you in Genesis 2 is yet unlike cultivated. No shrub had grown. He's just kind of, he hasn't sent rain yet. It's kind of like, kind of like what? Yeah, kind of like, which 
reminds us of what? Formless and void. Now, now this is beautiful. Because Genesis 2 is now talking about Adam on the earth. And it introduces it in a way that says, the earth's all formed and, and it's ready to be filled. And now my image is going to carry on my work. Do you see that? It presents it in a way that it's like the earth for Adam was like the earth for me. And now my image is going to do in my rest my work. So, I don't you know, with, with, the boy, with our boys at home, you know, they love hammering and stuff like that. And so what I'll do, because it's really hard to start a nail for a, for a person, a little guy, right? But so what I'll do is I'll take a nail and I'll start it and I'll get it to where it can't bend easy if you hit it wrong, right? And then I hand the hammer to them and they finish the nail and it's easy to do, right? The hard part's done. Now it's the fun part is you get to pound that thing and it sink it in, you know? And that's essentially what God did with creation. He did the hard part. The creation's form, the creation is, is amped to be full now, and now he's handing the hammer to Adam, and he's saying, I'm going to help you finish the rest. It's kind of the concept, okay? Um, but how is Adam going to do this? That's the question. And this is why, this is where, catch this, we see day seven circulating and, and surfacing beyond day seven. We see it right now, okay? Day seven is living in the rest of God in some way, some fashion. How do we see it? Well, you remember um, that he gave lights for the seasons, but we explained that the seasons, more often than not in the Old Testament, is a word used for meetings, worship, festivals, right? So he gave the lights. So essentially, the calendar of creation is most primarily about worship, okay? So what do we see in Eden? We're going to see that when Adam and Eve get driven from the garden, the cherubim is, uh, they're stationed on what side? The east. The east. Okay? The garden within Eden faces east. I don't know which way is east right now, but let's just play it a little bit. It's that way? Okay. So the, gar the, the, the garden within Eden, it faces east. All right. The tabernacle door, specific, it's this way? This way? <laughs> All right. The tabernacle door faces east. I'll give it, I'll, I'll satisfy both you guys there, okay. All right. Catch what I'm getting at here as we roll, all right? Leviticus 25, 12 says that in the tabernacle, in his dwelling with them, he will walk among them. What does that sound like? Eden. Adam's working and keeping are used, the exact words used to describe the priest's role in the tabernacle.
And what those words can mean is cultivate, cultivate, and guard like a sentry, like a soldier, guarding, guarding it. When we get into numbers, you're going to see that these guys, if somebody approached the tabernacle, an outsider approached the tabernacle, you know what they were supposed to do? Kill them. Okay, it means guard. Shamar in Hebrew means guard is, is a primary uh, use of it. Ezekiel portrays Adam in priestly garments. Priestly vestments. Cherubim are stationed at Eden's entrance and found in frequency in the tabernacle temple. What's the argument I'm, I'm pursuing here? That Eden was the first temple. Eden was the first tabernacle. Okay? Eden was the place where the presence of God dwelt in a special way. Eden was the first tabernacle temple. The golden lampstand, we talked about this yesterday with seven branches, is a probable tree of life. Garden-like features are found throughout the tabernacle and then will be found in the temple even more. But in the tabernacle, you see pomegranates, open flowers. So it's it's got that garden-esque feel. There's a river flowing from Eden. It's pictured in Ezekiel's temple, starting with the trickle and then growing and growing and growing to a vast river. There's a river flowing out of Revelation's city temple, and there's the river flowing out of Eden. Metals found in Eden surface in the tabernacle and the temple. Just two are gold and onyx, and those were found in Eden, Genesis says. Three distinct regions are found in both. Three distinct regions are found in both. In the Garden of Eden, you've got earth at large, then you've got Eden, and then you've got the garden within Eden. The tabernacle temple have very similar realms. You've got the outer court, you've got the holy place, and you've got the holy of holies, where God especially dwelt. Regarding the cultivation of Eden, the expanding of Eden's borders, we see some curious texts in in the Bible that indicate that just, just as Adam was to cultivate the outside ground, you get this idea that the presence of God was to uniquely cover the earth as he multiplied and images spread. So what you see is that missions is not a New Testament term. Missions is an Old Testament concept. It's really important to understand. And, and I, can't, I can't tell you how Israel has sadly missed this, even to this day. My dad uh, flew to Israel, and he was in the airport, and he's an Old Testament geek like me, and he didn't, he didn't realize this, the way the Jewish people are to this day. But he was waiting to get on the plane, and he, he didn't have a watch. And he went and asked a rabbi the time. And so my dad's like right here, 
the rabbi's right here hearing the question. The rabbi goes like this. And my dad just thought he didn't hear him. So he came around and he goes, excuse me, the time? And he turned the other way. My dad was an, a Gentile. He's unclean. He wouldn't talk to him. Guys, think of how drastically this message has been missed by people who study it all day long. He's a rabbi. So this is a concept that, that Eden's expansion is important. I, I didn't, the passages were too big to put on the screen. So let me just read a couple of them to you that give you this flavor that Eden was meant to expand. This is Isaiah 40, uh, 54, 2 and 3. Listen to what it says, Isaiah says to Israel. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Lord of hosts. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Do you see that? Eden's intention, the garden within Eden's intentions was to spread in this beautiful way. Listen to Jeremiah 3, 16 to 17. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Again, that's just an object lesson. It wasn't the point. It wasn't the point. It shall not come to mind, the ark, or be remembered or missed. You know, Israel, if they heard someone talk in that day, they'd say, oh, that's disrespect. That's, that's, that's sacrilegious to talk about the ark that way. The ark is this special thing, but it was just a pointer. It wasn't the end. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it. Do you see? So, there still seems to be a unique center like Jerusalem. In Revelation, you'll see that the kings bring their produce to the city. So there still seems to be this special sacred center, this unique place of God, but his knowledge covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. Okay, when you get to Revelation, this is awesome. The entrances are from the east, from the west, from the north, and the south. In other words, the whole world will find entry here, right? Beautiful, beautiful image. Mark says, in the way he gives the uh, Great Commission, he says, go into all creation, right? Ends of the earth, all creation. Paul says, uh, I may have this passage in there. Oh, no. Paul says in Acts 13, 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Okay. All right. 
Any questions about that before we move on? Yes, yes, yes. Very good question, Yepsiga. All right. Two passages I'd give you, and they're right next to each other. Psalm 50 and Psalm 51. In Psalm 50, uh, in Psalm 50, God's talking about sacrifices. I'll, I'll read it. It's too important. That's a great, great, great question. All right. He's talking about sacrifices, and he's rebuking Israel. And he's not rebuking Israel for their lack of sacrifices. Uh, Psalm 50, verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to your God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. We're going to get to that in Leviticus, if we can ever get out of Genesis. The sacrifice of thanksgiving was the pe- it was under the realm of the peace offering. The peace offering was a voluntary offering that you just say, hey God, I love you. I'm thankful for you. You're awesome. And I just want to show you. No, no, just it's just I love you. And it, all the vow offering also fall under, fell under that, which we'll talk about. But it was just saying, God, you're great. And what it did is it was stressing the relationship in a unique way among all the sacrifice, the offerings. You'll get to the peace offers, offering as this equals this equals this equals the peace offering. It's peace. It's fellowship with God. It's enjoyment of his person. And that's what he's saying. Um, uh, Psalm 50 offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high and call upon me on the day of trouble and I shall deliver you and you will glorify me I'm not going to get into the vow offering now it's hugely significant don't let me forget that vow offering okay All right. so but this is an instance where God is sort of hammering them out for their religiosity with the, with, the, with the factors of the law. He's saying, look, I don't need, this isn't about me. It's about you. It's about you. You need me. I don't need you. And so let's get this, let's get this right. Let's correct this. It's not about law keeping. It's not about jumping through some hoop to, to 
satiate me, pacify me. It's about the relationship that the, all of this is seeking to bring about. That is the concept. And then in Psalm 51, very interestingly, David writes, and this is after his sin with Bathsheba. And what does David say? He says, let me find the right passage. All right. He's confessing. He's seeking restoration in his relationship with God after he did what he did. And then he says these words. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not ignore or despise. So, the law David got, I mean, he's called the man after God's own heart. He understood what the law was getting to. Yes, burnt offering, according to the law, was the offering that I'm giving you my wholeness. You consumed the entire object. There was nothing left. You're, you're, you're mine. I, I'm yours. I'm yours. All of me is yours. But what God's getting after Israel in Psalm 50, and what David's touching, putting his finger on in Psalm 51, is that the burnt offering was just a pointer to the truer reality, like circumcision, that the heart, the heart is what he's after, not an external ritual. Although the external ritual, like circumcision and burnt offering, help you understand it. Do you see? Okay. So yeah, that would be my answer. Yep, so got those two those two passages. Yeah. Um, yes, of course. Being what? Yes. Yeah. I love that question. There's a lot of people that argue about that, right? I would argue, I said this yesterday, restful responsiveness is what I keep coming to. Restful responsiveness according to God's provision. That's what I would say is the big thing he's hitting at. Restful responsiveness according to God's provision. That's, that's where I'm at right now. Restful responsiveness according to God's provision. I think that's the big theme that I want us to chew on. And yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I want to keep that in our minds. All right? So, tree of life, getting to the tree of life. Its name, I'm just going to make some points about it. Its name suggests intimate connection to God who just breathed the breath of life into Adam. 
right? So here's, here's, here's kind of the idea of the Torah. It's giving you everything, it's giving you in its opening chapters everything you need to interpret the subsequent chapters. It's giving you all the concepts to interpret what's next. So when you see a word that you've already seen, connect it. It's meant to be. So the tree of life, you, when you read about the tree of life, you got to ask yourself, who should that be connected to? What's the answer? God, because he just breathed the breath of life into Adam. So the tree of life and God are intimately connected. It's cent centrally located within the garden. We pointed this out yesterday. Interestingly, catch this, guys, the tabernacle will be similarly located with Israel's movements and tent formation. Okay? When Israel camped down their tent, it, it, it's, it's kind of like this, this table right here. In the very center would be the tabernacle. All, the, all the, the tent formations would be camped around the tabernacle. It was in the dead center. Okay? And then the Levites would be camped immediately around it. They were the guardians, the protectors of the tabernacle, just like Adam was meant to be in the garden. Guardians, shamar, to guard. That's the word that's used for Adam. That's the word that's used consistently for the Levites, to guard it, to protect it. They were sentries to, to guard around the perimeter of the tabernacle. Okay, there's even indications in the Torah that everyone's tent door was to be opened facing the tabernacle. It's fascinating, you guys. The tabernacle is the center. Then, when, it, when it's time to get up, the, the cloud moves, the pillar of fire moves, it's time to leave. Everybody uh, packed up their tents. The Levites, uh, specifically one branch of the Levites, packed up the tabernacle. And then when it was time to leave, six tribes led the way, Levites, six tribes behind. So guys, <laughs> connecting all this, this is all based on the garden within Eden. It's all based there. And what is it telling you? What's the message it's telling you? That the most important thing in everyone's life should be the sanctity and uniqueness and specialness of God. That's the most important feature should be in the entirety of the planet and in the church and in our lives. Yeah. Yeah, amen. Okay. Intimately related to the Torah's uh, presentation of what are some themes that we begin to see throughout the Torah as they come up? I'm presenting to you today, Israel, both life and death. Blessing and cursing. They're both standing before you. Where's he getting that? What was in the garden? In the middle. Tree of life. And what was next to it? It's all based on that. It's all interconnected. It's all coming back. That's why after Genesis, nothing's new. 
It just is said in different ways. Directly related to Psalm 1, 1 to 3, think of what the psalmist is saying. Blessed is the man who meditates on his law day and night. He will be someone who has the law at the center of his life. I'll tell you what he's like. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in season, who leaves, whose leaves do not wither. What's he saying? When you meditate on the tree of life, guess what you'll become? A tree of life. You will be a tree of life. You will be a fruitful tree that gives life to other people. Through Christ. That's, that's what he's getting at. Proverbs 3, 11, 30, 13, 12, 15, 4, all talk about, they actually mention someone who has a gentle tongue, it says, is a tree of life. So what it's getting at is our behavior actually becomes, we become a tree of life in our responses and actions. And James, I thought of a question, I thought of a response to your question about reason and with the image of God, okay? And here would be my best response to that. When the image of God comes, do you think primarily of reason? You think primarily of character. Like, he is like his father. That's, that's what I, that's it in my opinion. That's why the image of God, for me, I think what he's driving at is you'll be like me. You'll, you'll hang out with the people that I would if I were on earth. You'll respond to your enemies the way I would. That's what image is. It's, 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 it's character. It's, it's that inner person of God. You walk in a room and you take the back seat in any situation. You know, the people you invite are the people that I'd invite to a party, not the people the world would invite to a party. You know, it's that, so when Jesus comes, who is the image of God, I don't think he's got intellect. I think he looks like God in all his behavioral capacities. Yeah, yes, of course. Love it. Love it. Yeah, I, I am right on board with that. Yeah, because it, it is really helpful. And I, I dabbled into this a little yesterday about cat, the kings casting their images, you know. It's helpful to understand the, the context in which this book was written to fill up some of the phrases and images. And I think that's definitely one. Everything I've read on Genesis points to something like that. So vice regency, I've heard that term before too. That's, yeah, I think that's really good. Really good addition. And this is all inching toward, of course, that who is the tree of life pointing to? It itself is an image that's, that's just to show you what Jesus is like. 
In him was life. All right, let's talk about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Very significant. Let's catch this. How's this tree related to God? Anything that's come before. You, you, you're, reading, you're reading Genesis for the first time. You read this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Who's it connected to? How is it connected to anything? Have we heard either one of those terms before? We have heard good. Very good. The, the narrator has prepared us to understand the understander of good. Right? Okay. This is, this is what the narrator wants you to think, okay? We know the person that's really good at identifying good, okay? Defining good. Also related to God in that he has been the only character defining good up to this point in the narrative. So, not eating, now guys, please get this. Not eating from the tree. Avoidance of eating from the tree was a recognition that God is and will always be the only definer of what is good and what is evil. To not eat from the tree says, if this is, if this is the dictionary of what is good and what is bad, that's written by God. I don't write it. I don't write that. He writes it, and I read it, and I do what's good, and I avoid what's evil. That is the essence of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And guys, what do we find in our world? We find in our world people that say, God's got the book in it. Give me that book. I'll write what's good, and I'll write what's evil, and it'll go peachy. It'll go great. Does it? Sin? What does Satan want to do? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what sin does. That's what, that's what our definitions of what's good and what's evil do. You get to the prophets and they say, they call good, evil. And evil, good. It's exactly, it all comes back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The equivalent in Proverbs is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I won't touch that, I won't touch that dictionary. I won't touch the book that God defines good and evil in. That's not for me to do. The whole world's looking around and saying, you're ridiculous. Try this. Do this. God says that's bad. I am avoiding that at all costs. In Proverbs, you see presented uh, two women primarily in Proverbs. One is Lady Wisdom, and one is Lady Folly. They are essentially pictured as women, because it's written to young boys, right? And it's saying, look, there's these two women out there. One is a virtuous woman. This is the woman that you should chase. And this is what she represents, and it's the wisdom of God. This other woman, the woman that comes to you when you're out looking for something you shouldn't, tells you her husband's away, 
He won't be back for a long time. She's just perfumed her bed. Avoid her at all costs. The guy that goes to her is like a, is like a deer that's about to get shot with an arrow and he doesn't know it. That's what that's like. If you, if you, if you go to that tree, if you go to that woman, it's a fire that you put in your lap and it will consume you. It'll never go out. It'll just eat you up. That's, that's what this is getting at. It's all, it's all connected. What do we know about judges? What's the, the summation of judges? It was a time that people did that which was right. Guys, do you see the beauty of biblical narrative? It's all describing the same thing, but in slightly different ways. But if you chew on it, you can get back to where it came from. And it all comes back to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's all back here. It's all here. Okay, any, question, any clarifying questions on the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Okay, good. Yeah, James. Oh, super, super important. Yes, and this gets into heaven too. Guys, check this out. To, to get rid of some misunderstandings of heaven and what I consider to be misunderstandings of heaven. Absolutely. They were cut off from the tree. The, the tree was some... See, Adam and Eve were not created independent. They were created dependent. They're just like Israel in the wilderness, dependent on God's sustenance. So yes, they would have eaten from the tree of life. That's the only way they'd stay living. He cuts them off and they begin to die because they don't have access to the tree of life. Is how I understand all that. Then you get to heaven. And how in the new heavens and the new earth does Revelation describe the tree of life? And its leaves were for the healing of nations. We picture heaven as like indestructible, doing anything we want all the time. Heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, I think are going to be very similar to this earth. That we will work, we will have jobs, we will go through life in a lot of the same ways as we do now. And I think we will, by having access to the tree of life, will continue to be rejuvenated. That we will never cease being dependent. We will never become autonomous or free from God. We will... The difference between earth and heaven is that in heaven, we'll for the first time fully embrace our dependence in a very glad way. We won't ever want independence like we do now, which kills us, actually, you know? So, yeah, I think they definitely had access to it. Because he said, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Of course, that included the tree of life. The only one, Doug Wilson said God only had one no. That's it. Was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Which, which was himself in that sense, going against him. Okay. Yeah.
Yeah, that passage, when, when Paul says that, first of all, I agree with your premise. It's, it is conjecture. And, and I should have said that. What I'm saying about heaven is conjecture, for sure. However, Revelation does tell us lots of things about it. So I think it's worthy conjecture. Um, first... 1 Corinthians 2, though, when he says that, I think he goes on to say that, that the message that is better than we could ever ask or imagine, I think he's getting at it is Christ in what's been prepared for us, is Christ. I, th I think so. I think he goes on to tell you what's better than we can ask or imagine. I think it's Jesus in that passage. Uh, um, a guy that I would heartily recommend, he has a lot of stuff online, um, so you would, you would have easy access to it, is a guy named Randy Alcorn. Uh, you spell his last name A-L-C-O-R-N. A-L-C-O-R-N. Randy Alcorn. And he wrote a book called Heaven. And he just unpacks a lot of the things the Bible tells us about it. And, and, and it's about the new heavens and the new earth, and it is a wondrous, wondrously good book to read. And it will, to Brian's question about the book of he the letter of Hebrews, it will excite you for that new land in a way that helps us live in this life rightly, you know, not making this our primary home. Randy Elkhorn, really good. Okay, let's keep going here. A river... <laughs> flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. This river stood out to the biblical authors, big time. Look at what Psalms 46 says. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. For with you is the fountain of life. These are all images back to Eden. Prophets envisioned its return. Let me, these, these were too many to put on the uh, passage. Um, oh, in Psalm 36, I, I only put in one part, but he starts out by saying, you give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is a fountain of life. So very beautiful in Psalm 36, 8 and 9. Then Zechariah says, on that day, Living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. The Lord will be king over the earth. Joel 3.18, all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come from the house of the Lord. Uh, Revelation, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds um, of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Ezekiel pictures a river flowing and becoming four rivers itself that starts as a trickle and then grows to be a, a massive river. And this is what it says. That river will go to the point where you can swim in it. There will be huge groves of trees surrounding it. And then he says, their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, just like Revelation's tree, 
because the water for, for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Just like Revelation, Psalm 1, 1 to 3. He says the river is going to be so amazingly fresh that it would turn the Dead Sea into a sea that you could fish from. Okay? So, guys, I was privileged to go to the Dead Sea. Have any of you guys like seen a cork? Cork? If you threw a, a, a cork in the water, what would it do? Just bob, right? That's what I was like in the Dead Sea. You can't sink. People lay back and read newspapers. And you can't sink if you tried. If you made yourself like this, you just boom, boom, boom. It's so salty. Nothing's alive in it. Salt is completely around it. And the Bible says that when this river flows, it will turn that into a place where guys will want to go fishing. That's, that's the incredibleness of, of what's going to happen. All right? But God moves from just being associating with, associated with the river to actually being the fountain, being the river. Jeremiah calls him the fountain of living waters. And of course, we see that in Jesus with the woman at the well. What does he say to you? Say to her, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink, and he would give you to drink from the living water. What is living water? It's, it's fresh all the time, right? That's how Jesus describes himself. Then in John 7, there is the Feast of Booths. And in the practice of uh, the Jewish people in the Feast of Booths, um, I believe it was on the last day, it was a particular day, where they'd come and they'd take a big pitcher of water and they would pour it out. And I think that was, the Feast of Booths was to remember what? Israel's time in the wilderness, right? And what did God provide in the wilderness? Water. One of the things he provided was water. So on the last day of the feast, the, the priest, I believe it was, would come and he'd pour a big pitcher of water out, and it likely meant that God provided water in the wilderness, right? And I think John points out in John 7 that it was on the last day of the feast that Jesus stood up and he said, Come to me, all you who thirst, and I will give you drink. It's incredible. Jesus is claiming to be associated with it. And then it goes on to say the people who, the, God's people dwell near that stream. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream, that does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. See? It's just like Psalm and Psalm 1, 1 to 3. And guys, we're going to look at Abraham in Genesis 13. And what comes in Genesis 13? A famine. A drought. And does Abraham fear? Or does he live in day 7? He fears and he goes to Egypt. Right? To find, because Egypt was a fertile land, the Nile made it very fertile. So this is Abraham, this is one of his not living in the day seven moments. And he goes, 
he goes to Egypt, and we'll talk about that. Okay. Um, yeah, all right, good. Lastly, they themselves will become, those who dwell by the fountain of living waters, will themselves become a living stream. If you and I dwell by the living waters, we will come become a living stream. Listen to how the prophets talk. Isaiah 58, 11. You shall be a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Jesus said uh, in John 7, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow living uh, rivers of living water. Jesus said to the woman at the well, Whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, you ready for this? You ready how John ends that pericope? Listen to what John says. What did the woman come to the well with to get water? A jar, right? Listen to what it says. So the woman left her water jar and ran back to the city to get the people to come out to him. Do you see the beauty? John's saying her thirst was quenched in Christ. That's the, that's the idea. And then she's running back to the city to bring people out. And I picture her as a developing stream as she runs. She's, she's becoming a living water vessel herself in bringing people to Jesus. Okay. Let's see here. All right, let's take a five-minute break.